You're listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the University of Arizona College of Medicine titled Respiratory Management of Children with Neuromuscular Diseases. Let's return now to presenter Dr. Corey Danes from the University of Arizona. So what do you see in someone with neuromuscular disease? You see a restrictive pattern. So when you do a spirometry on these patients where they do a forced maneuver, deep breath in, blow out as hard and fast as they can, the amount of air they move, that forced vital capacity is decreased. Because again, the pump isn't working, they're not getting them enough air in. They also have a decreased volume in one second. Their forced expiratory volume in one second is decreased, but it's proportional. It's proportional to their total vital capacity. So you don't see much obstruction. It's not an isolated decrease in the flow. The flow is decreased because there's less volume there, and so they have a normal ratio. But their total lung capacity is definitely decreased. There also is a difference between a forced vital capacity and a vital capacity that are done sitting, when all of the muscles of respiration are engaged and the diaphragm can move adequately, and when they're laying down. So if they're supine and they do these forced maneuvers or slow maneuvers, they actually have a lower tidal volume, a lower forced vital capacity and vital capacity than when if they're sitting up. You also might not notice necessarily that they're breathing fast or breathing shallowly when you see them in the office, but if you make them do a maximum voluntary ventilation maneuver where basically you time them over a minute and watch how much air they move over that minute, it's going to be decreased. Their minute ventilation can't make up for what it ought to be. And then we have a little bit more esoteric tests, and these are not the things that you guys see all the time, but there are things that we do on our neuromuscular patients all the time, and they are the maximal inspiratory pressure and the maximal expiratory pressure. What we do here is we basically make them suck in as hard as they can and blow out as hard as they can to measure the strength of the respiratory system. It's a global thing. It's not actually going to isolate out a certain muscle group or that type of thing. Inspiration, of course, you're measuring your inspiratory muscle strength more than the expiratory muscle strength and vice versa. But you're going to measure these so that you can get an idea of the muscle strength overall. These patients, at least to start with, are going to have normal diffusion because their lungs are okay. They don't have alveolar disease, at least not to start with. Now, once they start getting pneumonias and atelectasis and lung damage from infections and those kinds of things, then the diffusion may be affected. Going along with PFTs, another assessment of PFTs is how we assess cough. And we have another maneuver called a cough peak flow, and it basically is that. We're seeing how fast does the air come out of their, out of their mouth when they're actually coughing. Now, we talked about what optimal was. I told you 12 liters per second. So what that is equivalent to is 720 liters per minute, all right? And so what we know from experience is that less than 160, if they're less than 160 on this number, they have a completely ineffective cough. And they can't clear their secretions appropriately. They're not moving in enough to be able to clear their secretions. When the cough peak flow drops between 160 and 270, they're in danger. And they're in danger that when they have extra secretions at times of stress, when they're sick, that they're not going to be able to clear secretions appropriately. So infection is more of a risk for them. Another way of looking at whether their cough is effective is to look at that expiratory pressure. Because again, what are you doing with your cough? But you're shortening the expiratory muscles. So we look at the expiratory pressure, and when that drops below 60, where normal is about 150, that again suggests that the cough may be inefficient. 
And then, of course, from an inspiratory standpoint, once they have low enough lung volumes and their vital capacity drops below 40%, they're not going to lengthen those expiratory muscles enough, and they're not going to have an effective cough that way either. So you can assess the cough from all of those objective measurements. But a lot of our patients can't do PFTs, can they? So what do we do then? Well, you've got to go with your clinical acumen. You have to be able to assess these patients when you're looking at them in that hospital bed and say, this child has trouble with their cough. First of all, they're going to sound like a washing machine. These are the kiddos that just are congested all the time. They sound rattly. They've got secretions that are not moving and clearing. They're going to have low lung volumes on chest x-ray. They're going to have symptoms and signs of chronic atelectasis in areas that are not being inflated appropriately. These are the ones that are getting infected. They aren't coughing clearly, so they're getting recurrent infections. And it may be that it's not aspiration. It may just be that they get sick and they can't clear their infections, but they're having problems with their infections. And then you've got to subjectively see, did these patients have a poor cough? They may or may not cough for you, but ask their mom, ask their caregiver, you know, what does their cough sound like? Is it hard? Is it forceful? Or is it that, you know, weak kind of cough that doesn't sound like it's effective at all? So moving on to how then we assess whether someone is having trouble with hypoventilation, we have several ways of doing this. The first way is to actually rely on those PFTs. When do our lung function tests tell us that there's risk for hypoventilation? So we get our PFTs, and the answer to that is that when your forced vital capacity drops below about 50%, that's a risk. Second risk is that when your maximal expiratory pressure is below 40 and the third risk is when your maximal inspiratory pressure is below 30. All of those would suggest that you're too weak, that you would have trouble sleeping at night, you would have trouble with hypoventilation at nighttime, and you may need support. So you can use your PFTs as one of your first places to say, you know, these are bad enough that you need to have some other study done. There are places out there that actually don't use sleep studies for this, even though I probably consider sleep studies to be the gold standard for looking at assessment of hypoventilation. There are places that would say, if your SATs during the daytime, when, I'm, when you're sitting here in my office, are less than 95%, or if I do capnography on you and your end tidal CO2 is greater than 45, so you have CO2 retention during the day, you need to be on support at night, period. doesn't matter what a sleep study shows, you need support at nighttime. And a lot of places use that alone as their guideline for putting somebody on ventilation at nighttime. It doesn't have to be a sleep study. If you don't have the resources to do a sleep study, you can put a patient on a pulse ox overnight and see what they do. If they're desaturating at nighttime, having four or more episodes where they drop below 92, then that tells you there's a problem. But the sleep study is my gold standard. And when I look at a sleep study, I'm looking at several things. The first is the apnea-hypopnea index, and that's the most important. So during a sleep study, you measure how many times a patient stops breathing completely, the apneas, and how many times they're breathing more shallowly than they ought to, the hypopneas. These might be central, so they might be because the brain isn't telling the body to breathe, or they might be obstructive, which is going to be more common in your neuromuscular patients. But you add up all of the apneas and hypopneas that they have over the period of night, and you divide it by the hours of sleep. Normal is one. So everybody has a little bit. Nobody is completely perfect with their sleep. And so everybody has a little bit of apnea or hypopnea. But once that index gets above 10, that's problematic. And it may be problematic even before then. But you should be looking at that apnea-hypopnea index to do that. You also are probably going to look at arousals, and arousals are the times where there's restlessness with the sleep. A normal arousal is about 10 an hour, but some of these patients will have 20 or 30 an hour. 
Now, how do we assess swallowing and bulbar function? And I could do a whole talk on this. <laughs> in fact, I probably have, and most of you have probably heard it. But swallowing dysfunction is a big problem in these patients. And it makes them more likely to aspirate. They aspirate food and liquid that they're putting in their mouth. They aspirate their secretions from their upper airway. They aspirate saliva. And they aspirate reflux. And so if you want to know what's going on, you may have to do one of, of many things. The gold standard here for us is usually the barium swallow or the video swallowing study. And in this case, the patient is given various consistencies of food and liquid. They're tested, and you see whether or not they have trouble swallowing and whether they aspirate with that. If you're concerned that reflux is playing a role, then you can do a pH probe or potentially an upper GI study if that's all you have access to. And if you really just want to know whether or not they're getting stuff down into their lungs and that's what's causing the recurrent pneumonias, then you should do a bronch and look for it with a BAL. So now I'm going to focus on management. And I want to first say, you know, we need to know what our goals are. And I think that, you know, we're always about extending the duration of life. But really, in a lot of these patients, it's more about the quality of life that they have and making sure that we reduce their morbidity, that we improve their physiologic function, that they have good quality of life, that they have good growth and development. And we like to think we reduce healthcare costs as a general rule when we're looking towards these goals as well. So I take no credit for the four E's. I'm going to give Dr. Morgan credit for that. Um, this was his idea of thinking about how we manage these patients. But these are our management principles. We want to maintain expansion of the lungs. We want to clear the stuff out that shouldn't be in there. We want to avoid problems. And we want to continually evaluate these patients so that we don't miss things when things are changing. So how do we expand the lungs? Well, normally, when there's not a lot of respiratory in, you know, insufficiency, you don't have to do much of anything. But when you start to see the insufficiency as it's impacting the patient and they're having that shallow breathing or they're having CO2 retention or they're having pneumonias, then you need to help them expand. So here are some things you can do. Breast stacking in someone who's still strong enough to do it is basically that they take several breaths, close their glottis, take another breath, close their glottis, take another breath until they get enough inspiratory volume that they can have a good, strong exhalation and they can open up some of those atelectatic areas in their lung. Glossopharyngeal breathing, if you've ever seen it, is really remarkable. And in patients who are profoundly weak, they start to use only their glossopharynx to breathe because their respiratory muscles don't help them out much. And it's a technique of getting air in without actually using your lower respiratory muscles. And it's almost like swallowing. And they push the air down and into the airway. And they do this repeatedly, over and over and over again, until they have a full breath. And I've seen patients who only breathe this way, and it's really remarkable because they don't have enough muscle strength to be able to do it other way. But it is an adaptive technique. So now keeping the lungs clear, we got lots of things we can do here. And we're not really talking about aspiration. We're just talking about getting those secretions out of the lung. We want to make sure the secretions are mobile. So doing chest physiotherapy, either manually or with a therapy vest, if there are secretions, to help them break up the secretions. Doing breast stacking, either because with a bag mask or having the patient do that individually and then having them cough afterwards or doing it with an augmented cough. And here is where basically you apply abdominal pressure and it's almost like a Heimlich, <laughs> pushing the, the diaphragm up so that they have a forceful exhalation when they're coughing. And then the most common thing that you guys are probably going to see is the use of the cough assist machine. 
your mechanical insufflation and exufflation, where you cause inspiratory breaths to blow open the airways and then an exhalation, which stimulates a cough and allows them to cough and move out the secretions. Obviously, if a patient has a tracheostomy tube, that's an easy way to try to keep the lungs clear. Adjuncts to this are helping with that secretion. So when the secretions get thick, which can happen chronically in someone who actually has lung disease, but happens acutely in patients when they're sick, when they've got a viral illness, when other things are happening, you may need adjuncts. So we have mucolytics. Probably the most common one that we see in this population is using hypertonic saline. You guys have all seen it, right? <laughs> Everybody on the floor gets hypertonic saline. There's a lot of evidence that that actually does help to break up secretions in patients with viral illnesses and in CF. And it works in this population as well. You basically inhale the hypertonic saline, it deposits salt inside the airway, creates an osmotic gradient, and the water flows in and causes the secretions to thin out and makes it easier for them to move. It also has the added effect of irritating the heck out of your airway and making you cough. So we use it for that as well. In some extreme cases, we'll use mucamist. That works, but it's really irritating and it doesn't smell very good and most patients don't like it a whole heck of a lot. So if you can get away with hypertonic saline, it's probably a nicer and gentler thing to do. DNAs we tend to reserve for patients that have a lot of chronic lung disease, like our CF patients, because it really only breaks up secretions that are laden with DNA. And that means they've got to be, you know, the debris from a lot of cellular damage. So in most of our neuromuscular kids, pulmozyme is not going to make a lot of difference for them. Bronchodilators might. You can try them. They may help, especially if you're using a vest or airway clearance or chest physiotherapy with them. They can help open up the airway, especially in someone with asthma as well, to help them break up those secretions a little bit. And then we do have patients who occasionally need antibiotics, and we can have them inhale antibiotics. This is probably more common in patients with trachs because they get colonized with bacteria, but it does happen sometimes even in kids without trachs where they have lung damage and they have colonization with bugs that makes their mucus really thick, and so they need their inhaled antibiotics to help clear that out. Evasion, this is probably the, what we do the most. We want to keep these patients healthy. We want to keep them nourished. We want to try to avoid both overnourishing and undernourishing our patients. It makes the respiratory pump ineffective if they're overweight, and obviously if they're burning all their calories when they're breathing, they're going to get underweight, and then they're not going to be able to fight off anything. Recurrent pneumonia is a big problem here, not necessarily from aspiration, but also from retained secretion. So all the hygiene things we just talked about are really important as a chronic basis when the lung function gets low enough. Avoidance means good hand washing, cigarette smoke cessation, keeping them out of daycare if that's a possibility or away from people that are sick, and keeping them immunized, getting those flu shots in, making sure that you're doing everything you can to keep them from getting sick. And then aspiration is probably the thing that we worry about the most as patients progress with their neuromuscular problems. And I think here we sometimes do patients a disservice by assuming that it's an all-or-nothing phenomenon with eating. We want to maintain quality of life, and a lot of these kiddos, they want to keep eating. Eating is pleasurable, eating is social, eating is something that they want to be able to do. But they may not be able to do it effectively enough to get enough calories, and then you're going to end up in that malnourished category, and you're going to be worse off. Or they're going to be forcing it, and they're going to end up aspirating. There's a middle ground here sometimes. You can give them a G-tube or NG feeds to supplement them and actually get them enough calories to maintain their nutrition and take the pressure off, but potentially allow them to continue to eat the types of foods that they're able to handle without problem. 
And then your evaluation, you keep asking. Have them come back to clinic. I see these patients every three to six months. I want to know how their lives are going, how they're breathing, what their quality of life is like. Ask about their sleep. Follow up on their x-rays in their labs and get lung function so that you know what's happening and how they're progressing. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. 